Standby like use 2 through 33, sound 1A through 7 on deck. Standby Q actors. Electrics, kill the blue run lights, please. Like you 2 and sound 1A. Go. From Arizona Theater Company, this is Hang in Focus with your host, John Daniels. Uh, as someone that grew up in Arizona, it's a great way for us to share the work that we do worldwide. And featuring co-host Janelle Bragg. That is our responsibility, is to reflect what is going on in the world. Streaming live from the State Theater of Arizona. So let's do it. Let's really use this moment to re-envision ourselves. Welcome to Hang in Focus, live with Sean Daniels. This is the new Arizona Theater Company. I'm just glad that you're here. On today's show, Sean welcomes playwright and performer Vichet Chubb. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's go ahead and bring out the always amazing Chanel Bragg. Hello. Hey, how's it going? I know. I feel like uh, a little schlubby compared to you all dressed up, looking good. You got the <laughs> backdrop. Look, you look amazing. Thank you. I got my hair did. Remember I said I was going to get my hair done last week? I know. Um, I know. You didn't yeah, lie. You didn't I lie. Didn't you want to hear something so funny, though? So my hairdresser, you kind of can't dictate what your hairdresser has on the TV, right? And so, and it took about five hours to execute. And so I told them I was a big Frady cat and they wanted to put on uh, the TV show Them, which is <laughs> terrifying. That's so, an aggressive show to watch, get your hair done too, right? I'll tell you. So as I was getting my hair done, I was like screaming when the ghost would like jump out and like jerking my hair. So I'm glad it came out okay. And one of the writers on that is Christina Hamm, who was yeah. on our show, who is the author of Nina Simone, Four Women, right? So really, you were just doing research. I You're working. doing research, right? But I got really geeked out, though, when I started seeing the credits. And I was like, Christina Hamm was on our show. So that's really exciting. We're relevant, y'all. I know. <laughs> for today. For today. Um, so, you know, we're going to get to our, our deeply charming and amazing guest shortly, but I just want to remind everybody, we still have two days left of The Heath, starring John Larroquette and Lauren Gunderson playing herself. <laughs> Lauren Gunderson playing Lauren Gunderson and John Larroquette playing King Lear, of course, the two roles that they were meant to play. Um, and the people can go sign up if they want through our website, ArizonaTheater.org. Um, and it's free, right? We really made this as accessible as possible. So it's free for anybody to go watch, even though, right, it's Tony Award and four-time Emmy winner John Larroquette and Lauren Gunderson, who's the most produced playwright in the country, two out of the last three years. And it's her singing and playing banjo. And so you really don't get those two things anywhere else. Absolutely. And always have your headphones in to enhance your listening experience. You know, when I watched it, that was really what took it to the next level for me. Because um, I think right now we're all asking to be a little less visually stimulated by all the different videos that are out there right now. And so just sit back and go old school with it and hear a nice audio play was really like a nice change. And like, I don't know, John's voice is super soothing. <laughs> so it was great. I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, no, it's great. And very sweet John Larroquette, like, you know, did donor events for us, did the whole thing for it. And then he made a donation, you know, to be able to do it. Yeah, uh, like very much, you know, the whole time has been nothing but super supportive of us and helping us to move it forward. So you talk about how you you hope when you meet your heroes that they turn out to be the people that you want them to be or you envision them to be. And he has been just really kind and wonderful during this whole process. Yeah, no, he's really been great. So maybe more John Larroquette in our future. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Um, great. So let's go ahead and bring out our guest for today, which I cannot wait to talk to. So I want to introduce everybody to Vichet Chum, 
playwright, performer, writer, actor, advocate, dog owner, lover. Um, he does the whole thing. So let's go ahead and bring Vichette out. Hello there. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Um, so I, I have, um, I, I want to get into like some, some, all the charm that I feel about you because you're really one of my favorite people. And I feel like, you know, we've, I've been lucky enough to work several times with you over the last couple of years um, to be able to do those things. But I just want to start out and just give some, you know, you're a, you're a humble guy, right? So I want to make sure everybody knows how fancy you truly are. Um, you, I know, I know. So, uh, so you, it's recently been announced, right? That you're going to be in residence at several different places. And right. Um, so can you tell us just a little bit about what those are and what you'll be doing coming up? Yeah. So um, I, it was recently announced yesterday. Um, well, actually, let me take a step back. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm so very grateful to be here. Um, I heart Sean so very much. So I'm grateful to be in this space with him. And Chanel, I've just heard amazing things about you. So I'm glad to be in your company. Um, yes, so I am working on some stuff. Uh, I am on commission with Audible, um, and so I'm writing an, an entirely audio play um, for that format. And uh, they've been kind enough to partner with Space on Murder Farm to give me a two-week institutional residency um, at the Writer Farm up in upstate New York, and uh, I'll just be there writing a new play. Um, so that's the most recent thing. And then uh, I'm doing some other things as well, but that's the most immediate newsworthy thing, I, I suppose. And, you know, we don't know exactly when theaters are coming back or exactly who is doing what and things may be delayed. But before we had gone to the big intermission that we're in, right, Steppenwolf had announced that they were going to produce a world premiere of yours. And actually, several times, even afterwards, when they made their announcements, they always went out of their way to make sure that they listed you in there, which they did not have to do. Right. So that's that's exciting. Right. That's one of the theaters we all dream of being at. Yeah, no, they're, they've been so communicative, so kind through this whole process of, you know, deferring all these productions. And um, right now it's promised that, you know, my play Bald Sisters will be produced in their 22-23 season. And we're actually in conversations like right now about when that's all going to happen. So um, it is happening and uh, it's it's a play that I, I've been working on for several years. It's about the Cambodian women in my life, um, people who have nurtured me, who've taken care of me, who have taught me more about living than anyone else. Um, and uh, I'm just so excited to finally get that on a stage. I've actually never seen a play of my own on stage. I've only I've only been in my own like authored plays. So the opportunity to like finally get to see my work with me removed from the experience is going to be so exciting. I think I'm just going to cry the entire time yeah. <laughs> um, because it's going to, you know, it's going to be so exciting to have that experience for myself. Yeah, I like that you're starting with Steppenwolf. I feel like that's good. That's like a that's like a good low stress, you know, just find yeah. out what it feels like, how you could go through it. Yeah, you know, it's so funny though cuz the the reason why it's happening is because the the director of new play development there, um Polly Hubbard, um we went to college together. She was a senior when I was a freshman. And so, you know, I'm always 
mystified by the way in which this industry, the way our community works, where it's like, we were like kids on a, on a patio, like drinking like PBR and like now, you know, we're, you know, being, we're, we're colleagues, you know, and she is supporting me in a dramaturgical way and in the most, you know, profound way. And, 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 and so I feel very safe in, in that space, even though, yes, it is really terrifying because it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So I want to, I'll get to in a second talking about how we know each other, but I just kind of want to dive into like the news of the day also. And I know something that you've been very public about, right? Is that we know that um, attacks and hate crimes against the Asian American community has been up tremendously over 800% in New York City from this year to last year, right? And happening mostly in New York and LA right, where these, these things are happening. I know that you've been really vocal about what theaters should be doing, can be doing, have not done enough of. And I wonder if you can just share a little bit with us about what your thinking is on that. Yeah, I mean, on, on so many different levels, there's so much that we can do. I mean, on a personal level, it's like doing that work for yourself, doing that work as an individual, um, like really like under listening, um, 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 witnessing what is happening, um, not responding, but not responding immediately to your own feelings of the situation, but like, like taking in what is happening right now. There have been over 3,000 anti-Asian incidents um, in the country that have been reported. And that's, again, that doesn't mention the ones that have not been reported, right? Um, and so I, I think it's, it's really important that people do that personal internal work. Um, and then in terms of the theater, I think that we just have to, if we deeply believe in the positive, profound impact of what art and theater can do, we also have to believe in the profound negative impacts of what theater has already done. And I think about you know, Miss Saigon, I think about The King and I, I think about these, these narratives that have been written by non-Asian people about Asian people and the exoticization of, of, of Asian women, um, the erasure of Asian people on those stages, yellow face casting. Um, and while we can say, you know, it, oh, it's just like of the moment back then, you know, it's, it's not as prevalent, you know, these things have been, are still going on, right? And, and, and they have uh, perpetuated these narratives about these really harmful narratives about Asian people that have a connection to the way in which people view Asian bodies, Asian lives. And, and so we have to understand those connections. And so, you know, I implore theater makers to, to really like uh, investigate, interrogate their practices about the narratives they put out into the world about Asian people, um, Asian people and, and members of the, of, of the people of color, people of the global majority, you know, we have to do better in terms of like what stories we are putting out there because they are directly connected to the ways in which we perceive people, the way we treat people, the way we erase people, the way we commit violence towards people. Um, you know, that link between art and culture and humanity is so, is interwoven. It's so, it's, it's so connected. And, um, and, and so theaters have to do that work. Um, and, and, you know, it, 
we see you white american theater that document that they released that's a great start but like i think also theaters have to be really specific and 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 personal with their own communities as well um i i think also i mean not to speak um, on behalf of all people of color all artists of color because we are not a monolith by any means but what we are asking for is for you to be specific about your work. When you say BIPOC, you know, as a theater, like, what do you mean? Uh, you know, for me, you know, I'm a person of color. I'm not a black person. I'm not an indigenous person. So, so like the specificity of what we're asking for is, is really imperative um, because you can't just say BIPOC a bunch and, and not know exactly who you're talking to. Right. Yeah, or who you're serving, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think specifically to Asian American artists, I just say, hey, like, if you enjoy our culture, like, let us lead our own narratives. Let us, like, program us and let us lead and let us envisage what that production or what that story is going to be. And, you know, Sean, I... I I think about that experience with Merrimack when you, you know, extended your hand to me, you, you knew that, you know, Merrimack was in Lowell, Massachusetts, which had the second biggest Cambodian population. And you wanted to bring a Cambodian story into that space to know that that space was also a part of their community. Um, and, and, and you took a chance. You didn't really know me. I mean, you were just like, Hey, you want to come over? And I was like, okay, sure. Um, and the connection I have with that community now is profound. And the fact that, and this is deeply embarrassing, but the fact that my face is on literally on the front of the theater, like tells, you know, that Cambodian community that this space also belongs to them. Um, and I still get emails from that experience from people who witnessed that show who have who, who were deeply impacted by that experience, who got to witness a Cambodian person on stage for the very first time, who, who got to be witnessed, um, you know, in terms of like, you know, in the Cambodian community, there are many survivors of the Cambodian genocide who, who came to see the show. And, you know, many people email me still and say, you know, thank you for witnessing my experience. Um, and that, that is so beautiful. That is so profound. And, and, you know, it's, you just can't underestimate those kind of connections, those, those connections that build, you know, these like profound relationships between artists and communities. I'm sorry, I, I should get off my soapbox. No. <laughs> I love that. Like, every, you, you made me snap. If I'm snapping, it's like, yes, I'm here for it. Um, and I just agree with everything that you said, you know, as a person of color myself a lot of the hurt that I've ever experienced have actually been within the walls of a theater. Like I've actually experienced more racism within something that's supposed to be a safe space than when I'm outside walking on the street, you know, being harassed by said random bystander. It's a small microaggressions. It's the not color conscious casting. It's the assuming that I can't play a certain role because of what I look like. And all that permeates deep. And so I personally took it offensively when I watch shows that do not have the accurate representation some of the shows that you've mentioned before. And so thank you for telling, like bringing that up, that the threat is not just outside, it's within our walls and our responsibility to do something about it. Yeah, 
No, thank you, Chanel. I mean, it's like we're human beings. We re-enter society after you know, uh, after uh, some sort of micro or macro aggression that we've experienced in the theater, and we have to deal with that trauma for the rest of our lives. You know, and I, I think we have to name that it's traumatic what we have been through, and that's something I've really. Um, you know, after the horrible Atlanta shootings of those six Asian women and two other non-Asian people, um, you know, I think that the in witnessing that um, that uh, press conference by law enforcement um, and and witnessing um, someone who's in charge for the prosecution of this crime diminishing diminishing what is happening and centering the the perpetrator and and automatically that feeling of being gaslit about what this was his inability to name it as a racist a racially motivated act and it's it opened up this thing inside of me truly i mean i think that i've been in fear for the last year fear from my parents fear from my family um, because i could read the writing on the wall we have a target on our backs right now because the you know the former person in charge twice impeached guy um did many things to put that target on my community's back um as as he did to many other communities um, communities of color. And, and so I felt the anxiety of this last year on my heart, but I also, I, I, there are so many things going on. And so I, I, I felt like I didn't have a right to name it in some way. And then after that Atlanta shooting, it was like all of the stuff that I had internalized my entire life, the stuff that I had, you know, rationalized or said, you know, uh, it happened because of this reason. It happened because of that reason. It all sort of came out. And I, and I think it was a really important moment for our community because I, I felt like many people, um, AAPI people, were feeling the same feeling of like, we have to name what has happened to us. What has happened to us not only in this last year, but what, was, what has happened to us our entire lives. And, and, and the level of gaslighting to not name it as racism, to, to diminish it um, the, the, the level of violence of what those acts are. Um, and, and I feel like I've, I'm stepping into a world in which I just don't care about being like, about being shy about what somebody has done to me because we have to name it to fix it. Um, and, and, and I can't bear that burden alone. We have, I need people who have perpetrated against me to bear that burden. Um, it is no longer my own. Well, along those lines, you've told me this many times and I love to hear it every time. Can you just, and this will sound like a tangent, but it's right in line with this, why you decided to become a writer? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, there are many reasons why I uh, decided to become a writer, but you know, I, I was an actor primarily um, at the beginning of my career. I, I went to undergrad and graduate school to, to be an actor. Um, but in grad school, I was also um, taking playwriting and directing at the same time um, because the pedagogy um, encouraged us to become more so theater practitioners over just like disciples of one form. Um, and so uh, I was really grateful for that experience. But the minute I stepped into New York and did the auditioning and did all that stuff, 
I realized the the parameters of which people were perceiving me, the really harmful parameters. I, there was this one day where I had four auditions. It was like Mongolian sheep herder, delivery guy, valet guy, and other delivery guy. And I was like, wow, this is what people perceive of my humanity. This is what people think of me. And how, and, and to have to, as actors to go into those experiences to know what they perceive of you to then be sort of subjected to the harshness of like the way in which people just say uh, you're not right bye you're not right bye you're not i mean it, to to go through all of that you know i was like god i have to i i have to expand you know you know the 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 opportunities for for people like me you know i i see all of my contemporaries my asian contemporaries my my friends my beloved members of the beloved members of my community go through similar things and i was like oh, i gotta i gotta write for 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 me and for other people um and and in the same token you know i am cambodian american and you know my i have one playwriting goal and that's to write as many cambodian characters as possible because it's really important me important for me to show that the cambodian people are not a monolith and and i think over the years you know there's there, there's always been a lot of interest in cambodian people in in relationship to the cambodian genocide into this like portrait of tragedy. And, um, and while that is so important to our history, um, it was a horrible event and it has informed so much of who I am as a human being and as an artist. And at the same time, I am both concerned with survival and how we thrive beyond survival as well. And, and so I am, really interested in writing as many Cambodian characters as possible to to show the complexity of our people, to show the, the myriad of our experiences, um, to show that we're also just like people who go on dates, hang out with our friends, um, do things that have nothing to do with the Cambodian genocide, though it is, you know, deeply um, ingrained in our fabric as well as people. Well, and you know, I feel like how we did your play the, the first time um, at MRT is like a real model for how organizations can begin to bring new audiences in, right? So for people that don't know, like Lowell, right, has the uh, second biggest Cambodian population. It's a third of the town, um, as far as we know, right? Because they don't always like to be counted for various reasons, right? So. Uh, when I got the job, I was like, we're going to do a Cambodian play, which is like really easy to say. And then you start to be like, what is that? How do we dig into this? And so, I, you know, I talked to a bunch of people and everybody pointed me to you. And then when we started talking about how to not only develop your play, you were really forward and said, I want to come to town several times that have nothing to do with my play. And I just want to get to know the community. Right. So you came several times and we never met anybody in the theater. We always went out into the community. Right. We found the local Cambodian newspaper. We met with them. They were delighted. Right. They came in and reviewed the show in Khmer, which is amazing. Right. But it was a real you really put in the work in advance, which shouldn't be on you. Right. Theaters should have to do that on their own. But you really went out of your way to be like, I don't want first rehearsal to be when I meet 
this community if you're really genuine about bringing them in. And so you did all this extra work in terms of coming to town, meeting with them. They knew you as a person. They really invested in you. So by first rehearsal, it was just like, oh, our friend Vichette has a show. Let's go over and see what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, I'm so keenly aware of like theaters, you know, regionally in New York, LA or whatever, who program, you know, the BIPOC show. And then, and then all of a sudden their marketing materials look a certain way. And you're like, wait a minute. And, and it, it feels like this con to get, you know, communities into your seats only for specific shows as if, you know, communities of color, people of color can't respond or connect to the humanity of whatever show you're programming, right? And it, so it shows a very narrow perspective of, of your communities and also like what you're capable of doing, you know? And so for me, it's like, I, I'm a stranger to Lowell, Massachusetts. I, I, I don't live in Lowell, Massachusetts. So it is so, the first step should be to building that relationship, to, to getting to know those people and to getting to know what they give a shit about, to, to, to really like making sure that I, I have meals with them. I mean, as a Cambodian, that's like the most important thing to like have meals with your, your aunties and your uncles and your, your cousins, you know? So like now it's like when I go back to Lowell, I comfortably can go back to Lowell and, and, and it have not, have nothing to do with Merrimack. Right. You know, to me, it's like, cause I have friends there, you know, I have family there now. And, and I think that that's the kind of relationships we have to be thinking about in terms of the theater. If we think that theaters are a cultural, you know, uh, you know, uh, important component of, of our, you know, community of our society, then we have to believe in, in extending our arms or, I mean, post COVID, we have to, we have to be able to really get to know people for who they are and we have to go to them we can't just be like look at come into our stuffy theater and we'll close the doors and then you'll have an experience for two hours in the dark like that can't be the thing right like you have to invest in those relationships that's how you build communities well and then you know what we did afterwards right was like even after your show closed it was a big hit like then you were in another show Christmas at Pemberley, which has nothing to do with the Cambodian genocide, you know, yeah. just for being a great actor, right? Just for being like a truly charming, you know, debonair gentleman. And I feel like that was a great way to be like, no, we're invested in you, right? And you as a performer, not just when it suits the certain narrative. Absolutely. And, you know, honestly, like I, I, there were some Cambodian people who came to see that show and they were tickled. They were delighted <laughs> that I was like running around in tight pants and speaking in the worst like English Regency accent of that I could muster. You know, they were, it, and I was showing, you know, a different side of my artistry to them as well, you know, and they were delighted to see you know me share a narrative that is so different than the one that i was putting out there in the first place so yeah and that you have range right and that you have other interests to your point and that's what we're supportive of you as as an artist yeah and that i have training that i have the expertise in that space right i think that was the running joke in 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 grad school you know i would do all these like I would study RP, I would study Irish, I would study my Southern dialect. 
And like nobody would ever, like nobody's gonna cast me in those parts. Like no, no one will except Sean Daniels. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so you know, I, I think that's expanding right now. I mean, you you were mentioning Lauren Gunderson. Like her plays have been such you know spaces for for really challenging people's notion of like history. Um, and so that's exciting. It's really really exciting. Um, all right. Can you just dive a little bit more into what Bald Sisters is about? Because I love this show so much, right? And it's gonna it's gonna happen at some point, and then we're all gonna do it. So, how can you give us just like a little bit of a preview of what what's in for the rest of us in the like twenty four twenty five season? Yeah. So, Bald Sisters is about three Cambodian women, um, the matriarch and her two adult daughters. Um, the, the matriarch, um, has recently passed away and, um, the, the older sister has been living with the matriarch, uh, for some time and has sort of watched her mother decline, um, in her health and has, you know, really occupied that, that older sibling space of just like taking care of, of her mother. Um, and the younger daughter, the younger sister, has been away in New York and um, is a photographer and is a bit of a mess. And um, somebody who's really struggled with understanding her place in this family. Um, it should also be said that um, the mother um, and the, the older daughter are survivors of the Cambodian genocide. Uh, the mother, when she was a woman, um, and um, <clears throat> adult woman and the older daughter when she was a young girl. And um, the, the matriarch um, had the younger daughter um, in the refugee camps in Thailand. So she, the younger daughter really does have such a different point of, of reference and uh, experience in her relationship to the Cambodian genocide and to that legacy of tragedy and survival. Um, and so that's a part of that tension, that, that, that fraction between the two sisters, because they've lived such different lives. Anyway, so the mother has passed, and, and now the, the younger daughter has descended on, um, descended on their home, <clears throat> and they have to decide what to do with her body. Um, and in Theravada Buddhist tradition, um, the mother, uh, someone who has passed, um, would be cremated. Um, and the older sibling would shave their head and go into the monkhood. <clears throat> and so at the same time, sorry, the plot's a little complicated, but at the <laughs> same time, the older sister has uh, been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so she's actually going through that as well, unbeknownst to the younger sister because she's been away. And so the younger sister comes home, discovers that her sister is going through cancer, going through chemo treatment, and that and has been unable to communicate with her mother before she's passed and has shaved her head because she has made the decision to take that on the mantle of that sibling responsive older sibling responsibility of shaving your head and going into the monkhood i mean as a gesture and so uh the younger sister is like we got to cremate her we got to cremate her and the older sister is like i'm not doing that we're gonna bury her and so it's sort of about this tension of worldviews and this collision of of these two women who love their mother dearly, um, but but are are having to reckon with their relationship and their relationship with their mother who has passed. Um, and yeah, it's really 
it sounds like kind of sad, but it's actually kind of funny. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's all about like family dynamics and, um, you know, how I remember as a, a young person, my mother always said to me and my brother, who's older than me, that the only person you'll have for the rest of your life is your brother. And, and that I've deeply internalized that. And my brother and I fight all the time. And, and, and so in sort of examining this relationship between the two sisters, I'm really um, exploring that, that tension of, of two people who have come from the same place, that same space of nurturing, but are entirely different humans with entirely different worldviews and are trying to love each other uh, when it comes down to it, just trying to love each other um, in the context of really difficult circumstances. And what's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful play. I, you know, I tried to program it. And then when I was in LOL and then Steppenwolf was like, I don't even know who this is. We're going to do it. And it was like, all right. Fine. Um, what's it, what's it like when you find out that Steppenwolf is going to do your show? I mean, you cry when they want to do a workshop <laughs> and then you <laughs> And then you cry more when they tell you that you want to do this show. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredible. You know, when I was in college, I saw Pillow Man at Steppenwolf. Um, so I was, you know, gosh, I was like 20 years old and I was seeing, um, oh my God, I for, I'm forgetting his name. Shannon, Shannon, what's his name? Shannon, that guy? No. Nope. Okay. Uh, famous actor guy um in pillow man and seeing this production of these people just like like michael shannon thank you will rogers um michael shannon in pillow man and i you know as a eager acting student i was like oh this is acting this is theater they're like yelling on each other and they're spitting at each other and this is beautiful um and so it's it's always been a place that i've admired for its guts for its, you know, programming of shows that are about like how complicated it is to love one another, and 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 its programming of like family dynamics and 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 American families, and and then to think about this play and this story, which to me is a very American story, it is a deeply Cambodian American story. Um, to to just visualize it in that space, I mean, I think I'm just going to be a puddle. I, I don't even know how I'll be able to be, you know, uh, uh, I don't know how I'll be able to make any decisions. I'm just going to be like, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for this. <laughs> so. Well, and especially right after a, being delayed, right, for two years, yeah. because everything's delayed for two years, right? Like the anticipation right. is even that much more. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I'm sure you all have, have have been having these conversations, but it's, man, it's been hard. It's been really challenging, you know, and uh, to be, to have the, have what we do taken away from us, the way in which we express ourselves, the way in which we relate to one another, the way in which we, you know, make our contribution to the world. Um, it is so, it's been so challenging. And, you know, I've, I've just told myself, you know, there are so many more important things that are happening in the world. You'll have your moment, you'll have your opportunity. Um, but I also think, you know, it's important to recognize that loss, you know, to really say, man, you know, we, we've, 
been through a lot this last year and um, the loss of work and the loss of employment for for our community is is really has been really tragic and and I feel the vibrations in me right now. I got my second shot this last week. So I, I, I'm feeling the hope, you know, I'm really feeling the energy that we're, you know, we're pushing forward and envisaging, you know, the theater that we want to go back to. So to talk a little bit about that though, and you brought up early the We See White American Theater document and kind of like this call that we just all need to do better, right? And so after the pandemic is over, like, what do the seasons look like? I mean, I know that we are all making commitments to, you know, no more all white production teams and things like that. But like, what would you like to see both on the creative side and as a performer to be a real change that you see within the industry? Oh, my gosh. I mean, how much time do you have? You know? <laughs> I mean, I think it's all I think we have to be really intentional about our language. You know, I think that like. I'm already hearing people say things like, you know, um, we're going to go back to the way it was, you know, and I don't want to go back to the way it was, you know, that's not something I want to do because I, I think before, you know, we were constantly sacrificing and making compromises, um, for fear of retribution or fear of being called out or the fear of like cl doors closing on us. Um, and I don't want to be in that space that mindset of fear anymore. I don't, I, 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 we can't do that. Um, in terms of what I want theaters to do, I mean, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's really hard. Cause I just, I, I saw, you know, theaters release all of those statements, particularly last summer after George Floyd's murder. And there was a part of me that was like, I'm grateful that you're saying something, but there's a part of me that is also that also feels like, oh, this feels generic and also like unspecific. And how is that attached to your own work? Um, and and so, I just want us all to be so much more intentional and so much more specific. I want us to not jump to results all the time. I want us to be in the process of having conversations that are really difficult. Yes, I want theaters to program um, as many different voices as possible, um, but I also don't want it to be because you're filling a quota, uh, 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 some sort of you know arbitrary quota that you've created for yourself that's given you a pat on the back to say, look, we did this thing. It's more so of like, how does that affect your own personal humanity? Has that are you programming this thing because you deeply believe in this thing and you deeply want to understand more about this community, then yes, do that. You know what I mean? But I think it's, it's all about like this dissonance between optics and like the actual intention of the thing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, let's program more shows. Let's develop more shows. If you've been at a, if you're an artistic director of a theater for 20 years, get out of there, you know, like move on. You still can change and evolve and grow into another institution. Like, like, you know, boards have to change, you know, boards, uh, artistic boards of theaters and, and new play development organizations, they have to diversify um, even more and not even just diversify, but also like be a space of in real inclusion and real access. Um, because, because, you know, I'm on a board of a uh, new play 
a new play organization, and I am one of two people of color um, on that board. And 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 I think that I do, I don't uh, I don't uh, want other people of color to feel the way that I feel at times. You know what I mean? Like, and that really is a space in which decisions are made. And so you know we've got to figure out the board situation. Um, and, you know, I think also artistic leaders can just keep listening to their community and to their artists. Um, you know, artists are artists and theater practitioners, you know, designers, you know, crew, you know, I think we have to have a space in which like there is a feedback loop where we are really communicating about what is happening in our spaces versus just trying to hit our marks. You know, I think that for a long time, people were just like programming, producing, and then it's just like this continuum of production um, that doesn't have intentionality to it. You know, I think we've got to have conversations. We've got to create a space in which we can really talk about what happened and how we can make things better. Um, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no, I love it. Thank you for that. Um, you spoke straight to my heart. Um, cause I, I hope for the same things I've been on boards where I've been the only one, I mean, I get it com completely. And so it's important for us to start making that shift. I, I will keep this person anonymous, uh, but I have, I run a, um, a diversity organization for theater and I had a local member contact me and share a letter that they want to share with another institution to say, Hey, it's been seven months. And that statement that you put out you're not abiding by that statement. And I was just so proud of that young person and proud that they took the initiative, proud that they saw you know, something in me to wanna to run it by me first to make sure that they're in pocket. Um, but I, I, the bravery that it's taking people, and I'm not saying for us to do the emotional lifting because the, the, the time for that is done, um, but the bravery that it took for this person to go to this institution and then challenge it, but in love. I read the letter. It was eloquent and beautiful, but challenged in love. And there's been really, really great feedback since. And so I just want to encourage everybody off of your beautiful words that the time is now. We can all make a difference. We can call people out in love and then say like, hey, let me help you get here. Or if I don't want to do that emotional lifting, let me at least help you name it. So that way you can do the work on yourself and then you know, can influence our, our community. So thank you. You're like speaking to my heart so much. I've been snapping. I've snapped so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, and I love what you just said because, uh, you know, accountability doesn't have to be scary. Like, can we remove some of that fear? And then also like the fact that a young person had the audacity and bravery to write that letter it's like look to our young people man they 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 don't give a shit about the status quo i'm cursing so much i'm so sorry but they don't care about the status quo they're they are encouraged and motivated by creating the world that they want to live in and i think we all have to be braver to do that well, I mean, I think why I love having you on this show and us even having this platform, right, allows us to begin to amplify this conversation and these voices in a way that I think, you know, when theaters only get six plays a year, it is that it's so small in terms of the amount of conversations that you can have, right? So just to be able to say, like, every Friday, we're going to bring artists on that we love and respect and want them to talk about, it just gives us more avenues, right? Because otherwise, it feels 
It's like six shows and three of them have to sell a certain amount of money. So really you have three shows to be able to have community conversations. And it just, it just feels inadequate. It feels like as theater makers, we're not, you know, months go by when we're not talking in this way to our audience. So that's why I'm so grateful for this and for people like you that want to come on here and have this conversation. Yeah, you know, I, I just feel like we have to like unlearn that theater is just like a space in which people sit in the dark and watch a show. You know, we right. are a we can be community spaces, you know? And if anything uh, uh, that we've learned from the pandemic is that we are malleable, you know, facile, artistic humans. We can like be flexible to, to the needs of our community. So, I mean, I, kudos and, and props to, to you and Arizona Theater Company for having this platform for this conversation. So before we go, can I can I change subjects to something ridiculous that you taught me about in the last like two months? <laughs> yes. Can you can you just talk a little bit about Bosa Donuts or donuts in general? Oh uh, yeah. Because because this is what so we we eat a lot of Bosa Donuts here, right? And then we're <laughs> like we're like let's who are the like who is Mr. Bosa whatever? And suddenly we went down this rabbit hole of like Bosa Donuts in Arizona is a Cambodian run donut shop and so we texted you and you were like you don't even know what you're talking about like donuts in america are all cambodian run like it, there is a deep relationship between the cambodian people and donuts can you can you just say a little bit more about this because I, we oh, went down like a rabbit hole for weeks like trying to figure this out with you yeah it's so funny because my uncle owned a couple of donut shops in uh california um in long beach and because <clears throat> you know, donut shops, Cambodians have had a, 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 have a very tight relationship with donut shops. Um, and if you go to California, if you go to Southern California, I mean, all of the donut shops are owned by Cambodian people. And so when you, when you texted me about Bosa Donuts, I was like, probably it's a Cambodian person. If it's, an Indo if it's not like Dunkin' Donuts or if it's not Krispy Kremes, it's probably right. a Cambodian person. Um, yeah, and there's actually a documentary called The Donut King that I think was recently released about um, one of the major uh, uh, Cambodian donut tycoons um, and his very complicated history. One day I will write this into a play, um, but his very complicated history being an immigrant, a survivor of the genocide and creating this like incredible tycoon or incredible legacy uh, uh, this string of donut shops, um, and then like his sort of downfall because it, it he had a sort of sordid history. Um, so yeah, I smell a play in there. There's a play in there. Yeah, can no. sensory related to though? Can there be actual baking of the donuts during the show? So we can oh have yeah. yeah, yeah, donuts all day long. I mean, <laughs> I'm hungry for a donut now. Currently, yeah. yeah, no, I just I so you know it's one of those things like in Arizona. If you had asked people, they may not have thought that like the majority of donuts run through this state are Cambodian, but they are. They totally are. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. So when I come to Arizona, the I know. place we will convene is Bosa Donuts. No, but you <laughs> totally were because we're there all the time. Literally, I have one in walking distance of my house. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, every um, hang in focus, wherever we have a wonderful guest on such as yourself, we like to ask them a word, a single word that embodies the moment of now, uh, what you're kind of thinking about, what's going on in the world, about your work, about anything, about the pandemic, 
And so I just want to give you a moment to let that sit with you. And what word would you like to share with us today? This is hard. This is hard, y'all. You know, it's harder. It's harder for playwrights because they're like, <laughs> mm-hmm. because like words are so specific. When we have actors on, they're like, you know, <laughs> they got words. Like they're ready to go. Yeah, that's so true. I like it when you take your time because I'm like, oh yeah, it's gonna be good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you were speaking, the I should. I feel like I should just share the word that came to my mind when you when you presented the prompt, which is fragile. Great. And why? Why? What came to mind with that? Because I think we're in a fragile place right now. You know, um, I have been grieving the murders of black and brown boys this week. And I've been grieving the, the crimes against my API community. And my deep fear that I'm constantly worried about my parents, you know, and I watch American politics and it's hard to watch. And I see what's happening in our industry and our sort of envisaging, like stepping out of this pandemic. And, and it all feels very fragile right now. Um, and it's a moment in which we can be better or we cannot be better. And I just, I implore people to, as we are in this fragile space where we can be vulnerable to one another, like that's okay. Like we can, we can show our fears and we can also be better. Um, I just want us to be better. I just want us to all be better. You know what that makes me think about? And I, this happened right in LA recently. Do you remember, of course you remember, but like your show happened and then, you know, you were, we were nominated for some Boston Critics Awards. And, and so we went to the event. The event was a hot mess. There, the, the local community released a letter saying like, this organization is racist and it needs to step up. And so the Boston Critics Association decided to end their organization after some 35 years, as opposed to do anything to be able to do it, right? And the same thing happened to out in LA, right, with the East-West players, right? Like an organiz- a service organization of 40 years got called out, and so they, they closed to be able to do it, right? And it's this moment where it's like, really? That, that's the choice that people would make. They feel like in this moment, they would rather just stop altogether than to be able to do any work going forward. And so that, 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 that blows my mind in terms of both of those organizations closing down rather than just even starting to figure out how they can be better. Right. But it also, in that choice, you know, it sort of highlights who they are and what the organization is about in a lot of ways. And, you know, yeah, to me, it's like, I hope that they're doing their own personal work. I mean, I really hope, you know, because I think when it comes down to it, we think about our imprint on the world and our legacy and, and society. It's like, it's, it's you, you know, like we have so many choices that we can make within a day, you know, and we can choose to be better or we can choose to learn. We can choose to evolve or we can choose to stay precious and unwilling to look at people for their humanity. Um, and that's why it feels so fragile because I think I see people not choosing to be better. And then I also see people choosing to be better as well. 
It's always a joy to have you on. I could listen to you talk for hours and hours. Uh, you're one of my favorite people that I've met in the last couple of years. And so thank you so much for doing this. I'm so grateful to both of you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun. I wish I was just hanging out with you in person. You will. You will at some point. That, you know, when I got the job, I was like, come on out. And then about eight months later, I was like, don't come out. <laughs> don't. You know, like, there's a thing. There's, there's a thing. A thing and you can't come here. And yeah, but but eventually we'll get to that and we'll have you out here. We would oh, love that. I would love that. You are a joy. And thank you for all that you do for the community, like truly, and for what you do for your community specifically and the stories that you're telling. This is the work. And thank you for that. Thanks, Chanel. You're such a light, and I love your shirt. Yellow. I know, right? I know. I love your hair. I was like, I've been living in your hair this whole time. Thank you. Just Thank shake you. it out. Make a Facebook yeah. profile. Oof. <laughs> My partner does not love it so much. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, because we're both with Germans, like my wife eventually, the reason I have a haircut, she was like, I'm scheduling a haircut for you. We're doing this. You know, they're, they're, they're people serious about their rules. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's asked me multiple times if he can cut it himself. So, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have put it past him for sure. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Chanel, do you want to throw it to the call board for next week? Yes, I am. We are so grateful for everyone for joining us. Don't forget the Heath closes on sunday at five o'clock so you want to make sure you check it out i mean go to our website you can click on it the call board will actually show you how to do so so you have no excuses check it out it's going to be amazing and uh our great producer will has done a really great job with the call board so let's send it on over to him until next time thank you all so much this is your call board for April 16th to the 22nd, 2021. Hi, I'm Will Rogers, Community Engagement Manager at Arizona Theater Company. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you talk, caught today's episode where Sean and Chanel sat down with Vichat Chum, playwright and actor and all around great guy. Hope you check it out. Well, we didn't hear from development last week, so we're gonna head right on over to the Giving Corner and see what they have for us today. Development, take it away. Hi everybody, it's Paula Taylor your Chief Development Officer here at Arizona Theatre Company. Today, I wanted to take a moment to highlight someone who's been a real advocate for arts organizations and artists in Arizona. That would be Jamie Dempsey. She's been the Executive Director for Arizona Commission on the Arts for many years, and they just recently announced that she'll be leaving to join the Arizona Community Foundation in a new role, the VP of Philanthropic Initiatives. We're very excited to know that Jamie's going to continue her good work in helping support Arizona artists and arts organizations. And it's people like Jamie that help us continue to be a strong, informed arts organization. I also want to thank so many of you who have renewed your donations to Arizona Theatre Company you know, we just did a deep dive and we're actually ahead of schedule. For a year where our doors have been closed, this is huge for us. Now you may remember that Jamie was also featured on our Hang and Focus episode last year. So if you wanna visit our website, we have those listed. You can learn more about her there. But again, I wanna thank Jamie. I wanna thank so many of you and I wanna wish you a wonderful weekend. And we'll talk to you next week. Take care. If you haven't caught The Heath yet, our latest digital offering, it's an audio play starring John Laura Kent and the playwright herself, Lauren Gunderson. So please check that out. Head on over to our website. You can get all of the information. So we really hope you catch 
our upcoming offering of the Heath through April 18th, to be more precise. So there's still time to check all that out. We recommend you to get a good pair of headphones and listen to it that way. It'll sound phenomenal. And because this is our first audio play, we thought we'd walk you through a few of the steps to get to access this amazing recording. First, just go to our website, Real Easy Arizona Theater. That's theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org. ArizonaTheater.org. And from right there, you will see a beautiful scrolling image or scroll past it till you see the large picture of John Laura Cat. And you just click on that right there here on what we call our show page. Get all the 411 before you listen to the audio play. When you're ready, click on this large button right here too as it reads, sign up to listen to the heat. It's important to us to know how many people we are serving when we bring this kind of work to Arizona. And this helps us do that. So we really appreciate you helping us and help keep the arts going in our fair state. Now let's find out what's happening in theaters around Arizona. In Tucson, Shakespeare seems to be alive and well. It's a Shakespeare double header where Pima Theater is bringing us Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in less than 30 minutes. Directed by Chris Will, April 23rd through 25th. It's free, but donations are accepted. And the Rogue Theater has Shakespeare's As You Like It. Directed by Cynthia Meyer, April 22nd through May 2nd. Live or streaming and featuring ATC's very own Carly Elizabeth Preston. So don't miss that. Now headed up to Phoenix. Shout the Mod Musical, still through the 18th, so you have a few more days to catch that if you'd like. And ASU Gamage is bringing you Design Space, a new drive-through sensory experience created by Light Switch through April 22nd. I did that the other weekend. It's a lot of fun. It's a really cool experience, so I highly suggest you go check that out. Well, that's all we have for you today. But as always, if you enjoyed the conversation, please tell a friend, share it with them, send them the link, uh, subscribe to our feed, like us, ring the bell, do all the things you know that you can do to help us keep these conversations coming at you every Friday at four o'clock. That's when Hanging Focus is. Don't miss it. Have a great weekend and scene.